0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The state of New Hampshire says a refugee from the Congo is a danger to her community but many in that community disagree. No, she's not danger to the public. She need help. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll have two stories about miscommunication and the threat of deportation for New England immigrants. We'll also travel to one of the region's most important waterways to witness the effects of climate change on salt marshes, nature's buffer against big storms. A rise of just a couple of inches in sea level can completely change the character of the marshes we have now. And The Handmaid's Tale is a dystopian vision of a modern New England. And to have a dystopia, first you need a utopia. In this case, one based on Puritan ideals.
2: And so driving out witches, driving out other kinds of evildoers was necessary to this project.
1: It's next.
3: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We've been following the stories of immigrants to New England who face obstacles while trying to navigate the American law enforcement and criminal justice systems. In New Hampshire, Emily Corwin's been following a refugee from the Congo who's now out on bail after spending three weeks in jail for charges of child abuse. The state says she's a danger to her community, but many in that community disagree. As Emily reports, cultural misunderstandings and language barriers are getting in the way. Nine
4: months ago, Joyce Chance arrived in Concord, New Hampshire. She's 32 and she has two kids. In March, the state of New Hampshire took Chance's kids away. First, they were placed with relatives, later, in foster care. The kids' teachers had rung the alarm. They suspected child abuse. A month later, police arrested Joyce Chance.
5: She is charged with disciplining her children by hitting them, allegedly with a broom uh, stick.
4: This is Robin Davis, Chance's defense attorney. The state charged Chance with five counts of assault against her children. She spent that night in jail. The next day, a judge concluded Chance was both at risk of fleeing and a danger to her community. She would spend the next three weeks behind bars.
5: The big issue here is the cultural differences.
4: People who know Joyce Chance say she should not have been arrested and never belonged in jail. Samuel Bahuma also came from Congo as a refugee. He arrived here more than a decade ago and calls himself a community leader. He knows Chance. Do you think that she's a danger to no. the public?
3: No. No. She's not danger to the public. She needs help.
4: Bahuma and Chance's attorney say miscommunication and misunderstanding have shaped Chance's time in the criminal justice system. First, there's the language problem. Chance doesn't speak English. Bahuma says it's easy for law enforcement to assume guilt when they can't understand someone.
3: I cannot say that the police are bad. I'm not saying because the police, they come according to the information they have.
4: It's not just language. The information Bahuma says police and the courts really need is about her life.
3: She's traumatized for so long time.
4: These last nine months are the first time Joyce Chance hasn't been subject to war and violence in her life. She was born 32 years ago in a village in Congo. Bahuma says life in Congo has been brutal, especially for women.
3: Most of uh, women, and they have uh, experience of uh, rape by either military, the police, and uh, it's not a rep one time. It is like a cycle. In one year, you will go through four, five situations, and you can't control it because they are police. They have guns. They have everything. You don't have anything.
4: About 400 refugees are resettled in New Hampshire every year. In Concord, many are born in Central Africa and come from war. As Davis, Chance's attorney, says, both the justice system and the refugees themselves need more information about each other.
5: You know, I think that there is a gap here that needs to be filled. I'm not sure by who, but, you know, I think we're doing more harm than good to the refugees.
4: The court's lack of information about refugees was conspicuous at Joyce Chance's initial bail hearing.
0: Because I have no understanding of her status in this um, community, I have no idea what the refugee community from Congo, um, how, it, how it exists in this state as and others.
4: That was part of the reasoning Judge Diane Nicolosi gave when she set chances bail, putting her behind bars. The facts were available at the time. A refugee caseworker assigned to assist Chance was in the courtroom. She likely could have explained that refugees in the United States have rigorous identity and background screenings. She also knew that Chance's family lives in the same apartment complex, that Chance goes to church, takes English classes, and has a community. That caseworker was not asked to speak during the bail hearing. Then Judge Nicolosi alluded to one more accusation against Chance. This one was about her kids. It's something Chance's attorney describes as hurtful.
0: There is some indication that there may not be a biological connection.
4: Police discovered Chance's children speak a language she doesn't speak. Now they question if the kids are her own. (laughs) Bahuma, the Congolese community leader, actually laughed when I asked him about it.
3: I think the kid belonged to her.
4: He says her kids grew up in a refugee camp in Uganda. There, teachers spoke a different language than Chance would have learned in Congo. A DNA test could settle things. That hasn't happened yet. In the meantime, the police alerted Homeland Security, who may be investigating Chance for visa fraud. That agency wouldn't confirm the investigation, but the prospect of federal charges bolstered the state's argument that Chance may flee. After that hearing, Chance's attorney, Robin Davis, quickly requested a second bail hearing. It wouldn't get on the court's docket for another three weeks. As Chance waited in jail... Davis fretted.
5: They don't have interpreters at the jail, so she doesn't have the ability to ask for the simple things like a glass of water or uh, advise them whether or not she's having any health issues or she has any questions. Many times she will not be complying with what's asked of her, like head count or um, things of that nature, because she doesn't understand.
4: When that second hearing finally arrived, Judge Nicolosi was at the bench again. Chance sat in an orange jumpsuit, her ankles shackled. This time, a few things were different. Chance's supporters filled two rows of benches. Her pastor was there. And Chance's attorney came armed with information about refugees. Judge Nicolosi let Chance go home. A week later, I sat on a couch in Chance's apartment in Concord. It was late May. Chance sat across from me in a colorful patterned dress and a black winter hat. She stared down at the couch and wiped occasionally at her eye. We talked through a translator. So where I came from, if, if, if your children does something wrong, we're able to punish them. But when I get here, I punished my children, and nobody told me that it's not okay to punish your children that way. To clarify, in New Hampshire, a guardian can use physical force against a minor when she reasonably believes it's necessary. The state will likely argue Chance's behavior was reckless and caused substantial pain, making it illegal. A trial date hasn't been set yet. When it is, the stakes will be high. A felony conviction could mean deportation.
1: That's Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio reporting. That is, of course, the reality for many recent immigrants, refugees and otherwise, that a felony or even a lesser conviction could get you sent out of the country. But what if you're in the country illegally, but you don't have a criminal record? What if the biggest mark against you is an accident you had on the job?
2: Are we a place where people will have to live in fear that because of their immigration status, they can be treated as subhuman?
1: That's Reverend Mariama White-Hammond of Bethel AME Church in Boston, speaking at a rally on the steps of the state capitol in Boston for immigrant workers like Jose Flores. Shannon Dooling has been following that man's story and what it tells us about the new realities of undocumented workers during the Trump administration. Shannon, welcome back to Next. Thanks, John. First of all, why don't you tell us who is Jose Flores?
0: Well, Jose Flores is a 37-year-old construction worker here in the Boston area. He's originally from Honduras. Uh, He and his wife traveled over the border illegally um, some years ago. They've been in Massachusetts for about seven years now. Flores was injured on a job site in uh, Boston working for a construction company called Terra Construction. And this happened the end of March. He fell from a ladder and actually fractured his femur bone and had... Um, several surgeries, it was uh, quite a severe injury. And um, needless to say, he's not been able to work since the end of March. A workers' comp attorney suggested that he had the right to file a workers' comp claim. Um, And as it turns out, as we've reported here at WBUR, uh, the Terra Construction did not have workers' compensation coverage on the day of his accident.
1: And so without workers' compensation coverage, what exactly happened to him?
0: A couple of weeks ago, his employer called him and um, wanted to arrange a, a meeting. He he told Flores that he wanted to um, basically give him some some help to get him through this tough time and help his family out. Flores and his wife have five children together, and he is the sole provider. So, you know, since the end of March, they haven't been bringing in any income. Um, and so Flores went uh, to this arranged meeting, and um, right after he left this meeting. He told us about a block and a half away from uh, the property of the construction company, he was apprehended by ICE officials, Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents. That has led to some suspicion on behalf of Flores' lawyers, questioning whether or not the timing of this ICE arrest, right after he left an arranged meeting with his previous employer, uh, whether this is some sort of retaliation for the workers' comp claim. What did I say
1: about the arrest? Why, why was he arrested?
0: Well, ICE, you know, won't, won't usually comment on specific cases, but they did confirm that uh, Flores was apprehended on May 10th, which is the same date as his arranged meeting with his uh, previous employer. And uh, he had prior orders of removal, which means he had at some point been ordered uh, deported back to Honduras that basically gave ICE agents... Um, the authority to take him into custody because he was uh, ordered removed, uh, deported back to Honduras.
1: He was arrested, but he has since been released. W- why was he released and what happens to him next?
0: He was released for um, a temporary basis for six months. He'll be, um, you know, at his house with his family. He has a GPS location device around his ankle. Um, now, ICE told lawyers that part of the consideration for his temporary release from ICE custody is because of this workers' compensation claim and and sort of the potential for an investigation into whether or not Terra Construction had any sort of retaliatory intentions here. I should say that the attorney for uh, Terra Construction, uh, Stephen Murray, an attorney here in Boston, says that he can, you know, without a doubt, uh, say that his client did not make a phone call to ICE that day. The attorney also says that, you know, he has no reason to believe that um, there was any communication whatsoever with ICE on behalf of Terra Construction.
1: Let me loop back to that idea of final orders of removal. What, what did that have to do with? Does Jose Flores have a criminal
0: record of some sort that would prompt ICE agents to single him out? Jose Flores had exhausted all of his options in immigration court. At that point, uh, ICE was acting fully within their authority to to detain him. Um, His lawyers tell me, Flores' lawyers tell me that he does not have a criminal record. uh, But maybe around 10 years ago when the couple, uh, Jose Flores and his wife, were living in Florida, there was a domestic violence charge. However, um, his wife told me that there was a miscommunication that evening and she dropped the charges so he was never convicted of of any crimes.
1: You've been reporting on this broader net that ICE officials have been using specifically around the New England states that's caught up people like Jose Flores. What can you tell us about the numbers around Boston and, and the larger New England area?
0: The number that that really has been striking to me is the number of non-criminal arrests, meaning ICE uh, arrests of people who don't have misdemeanor charges, don't have felony charges, um, you know, maybe their only crime could have been crossing the border illegally, or, uh, you know, they could be here on an overstayed visa or an expired visa. Um, so so that's what they refer to as non-criminal arrests. Um, and, and that number has tripled this year compared to the same time frame last year. It's up to 335 arrests um, as of the end of April, compared to just over 100 during the same time frame last year. And that really does reflect um, the the president's broad priorities, if you will, in terms of enforcement actions and this wider net of enforcement that we keep hearing about.
1: Shannon Dooling, Cumbers, Immigration for WBUR in Boston. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me,
1: John. Coming up, the sights and the sounds of Long Island Sound. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. We've been reporting on how nitrogen gets into the Connecticut River and flows downstream into Long Island Sound. There, it feeds algae, which reduces oxygen in the water, killing off fish and other marine life. The good news is that the overall health of Long Island Sound is improving. Since the EPA implemented a nitrogen reduction plan back in 2001, fish and marine mammals that had been absent or struggling for decades are coming back. But while nitrogen levels fall, sea levels rise, and warming waters are causing other changes to the Sound that are much more difficult to reverse. Author Patrick Lynch provides a snapshot of these changes, as well as beautiful illustrations of birds, fish, and the variety of habitats along the shore in a field guide to Long Island Sound. Producer Andrew Moraskin and I met up with Lynch at one of his and one of my favorite spots on the Sound, Hamanasset Beach State Park in Madison, Connecticut. Patrick Lynch, welcome to Next. Thank you. Why don't you describe where we are right now? We are at Hamanasset Beach State Park on the
6: Connecticut coast, about midway um, uh, along the Connecticut coast and it's a spectacular location for talking about um, all kinds of natural environment things in Connecticut. It's got wonderful salt marshes, of course, the beach that many people know about, uh, and um, lots of interesting um, geologic features.
1: And and the geologic features include the place that we're standing right now, and it, it helps to tell the story about how Long Island and Long Island Sound came to be. Why don't you tell us a bit about that story?
6: Well, most of what you can see, certainly along the coast of Connecticut and almost everything on Long Island, were heavily influenced by the glaciers that came through, what people sort of generically refer to as the ice age that started probably about uh, 75,000 years ago, peaked about 25,000 years ago, and then melted back. 25,000 years ago, we would have been under almost 5,000 feet of ice, which extended down um, into the Long Island area probably about 25 to 30 miles south of here. And of course, all that ice moving over the landscape made huge changes. So most of what you see, including what we're standing on right now, uh, were formed by the
1: the glaciers. The, the body of water itself is, it's not ocean, it's not a giant lake. Describe what a sound is exactly, because this is a very different type of body of water that was left by this glacial retreat than uh, you see in a lot of other parts of America.
6: Sure. Uh, The technical definition of a sound is a body of water that's open at both ends. But what it amounts to is, um, from a certainly biological point of view, is um, a giant nursery for a lot of animals. An awful lot of the things that we care about, um, most of our game fish, food fish in the region, other kinds of things, spends at least part of its life cycle in the sound where it's more protected. Essentially, Long Island acts like a giant breakwater. But... um, you know, people in Connecticut and in the region, they say, well, you know, if you want a real beach, you go to Mesquamacate or something like that, ocean I mean, waves, Island, et cetera. Waves. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so in some ways, the the sound is kind of, I think of it as sort of the Rodney Dangerfield of New England. It doesn't get, I think, as much respect because people aren't quite sure what to make of it. Well,
1: and I think part of it, too, is is that for many decades, the Long Island Sound was seen as, as not clean. It was seen as a place that you would want to escape if you were going to go to a pristine beach. But over the course of the last several decades, it's become quite a bit cleaner and much better for wildlife.
6: Yeah, I think that's an important part of the story is, is um, we could certainly talk about the problems Long Island Sound has, but it has gotten very much better in the past few decades. It's still got problems, particularly down in what's called the Narrows area um, uh, in the western part of the Sound as it gets down to New York City. That area is still polluted and has uh, hypoxia problems. That, that is for a variety of reasons we can talk about um, in the summertime when it's very hot. The Dissolved oxygen in the water can drop very low, and that's when you get fish kills and other kinds of things. But even that area is better than it used to be. And in fact, down in that area just a couple of days ago, people spotted a large pod of bottlenose dolphins which is incredibly
1: encouraging. Tell us more about the, the problem that the sound has with hypoxia. It's something that we've covered on our program before. The, uh, the introduction of, of certain nutrients into the salt water causes problems with algae and it, it as you said, makes these dead zones where fish can't thrive. Uh, tell us about the problem and, and if it's getting better in, in much of the sound.
6: Well, hypoxia comes about um, because of an excess of nitrogen. Um, nitrogen can get into the sound a number of different ways. The, the primary way it gets in is um, from uh, various levels of treated effluent from sewage treatment plants and whatnot. And nitrogen is a problem, ironically, because it's an essential growth element. So in a, in a clean, pristine, natural environment, nitrogen is actually fairly scarce because it's so important that plants um, take it up very readily. Uh, when you dump an excess of nitrogen into an environment like Long Island Sound, you get these explosive growths of algae. Suddenly they've got all the food they need and they grow like crazy. Everybody knows that plants produce oxygen as they photosynthesize, but um, what what they may not consider is that at night, plants respire pretty much the same way we do. They use a lot of oxygen because they're not photosynthesizing. And when you have these huge blooms of algae, um, they can actually suck up most of the dissolved oxygen in the water, which of course is a huge problem as fish swim into that area, suddenly it's hard for them to breathe. But the algae also dies from lack of oxygen in the water, and then it gets even worse because the dead algae, um, uh, as they disintegrate, um, take up even what, what little is left of the oxygen. And so you can get areas, particularly in the western end of the Sound, where uh, they're just biological deserts for, for some months of the year.
1: Now, we don't get the big waves here because we have this natural breakwater, which is Long Island. However, when big storms come in, uh, it can really affect a coastal area like Hammond Uh Not too many years ago, there was a series of big storms, Sandy and others, that shaped and reshaped this beach quite a bit, took out a lot of vegetation. Talk about the impacts uh, that that has had and whether or not we need to gird for more of that coming up in the future because the, the topography here really has changed, I've noticed in just the last couple of years
6: yeah so a nor'easter or a hurricane is a giant cyclone that is it's moving anti-clockwise and as it comes up the coast um, that big leftward curve is why it's called a nor'easter for example the winter hurricanes that we get because that's that's what we perceive the storms almost invariably come from the south and not the northeast but the the wind is coming in from the northeast very powerfully we're, we're lucky most of the time in that Long Island will break a lot of the force of a hurricane, but sometimes, and very severely in Sandy, it came up in such a way that the wind was coming straight down the sound. Most of the time, the sound is narrow enough that we don't get devastating waves, but in Sandy, the wind was coming straight down the long axis of the sound, and we got huge waves um, impacting the coast. The value of these natural ecosystems Um, is that they act as giant natural buffers and breakwaters against these storms.
1: Many people who come to the shoreline, not just this park, come here to look at the water. Um, But let's look at the other direction for a second because the, the marshes that are here are such an important part of the ecosystem. And as you outline in your book, there's such a variety of interesting animals that live in there. Talk about the impact of the marshes and how important they are.
6: Salt marshes are not just beautiful to look at. They're actually the second most biologically productive environment on Earth, um, second only to tropical rainforests. One of the sad things about it, and Hammond S., it makes a perfect sort of um, test case for this, is that they're extremely sensitive to sea level rise. A rise of just a couple of inches in sea level can completely change the character of the marshes we have now. And um, what's called high salt marsh, the beautiful broad salt meadows that you see when you come here and other places along the coast, those are unfortunately quite likely to disappear.
1: Obviously that's something that is happening, not just here, but everywhere around the world. And it's something that probably we won't see head in the other direction anytime soon. Uh, what are some ways that, that we can adapt a little bit? Are there things that we can do to help preserve a, a salt marsh from, from the fate that you just described?
6: Well, when you look at what's going to happen over the next 50 years, say, unfortunately, there are low-lying places on the Connecticut coast that are just not going to be viable anymore. And that there is, you know, for a variety of reasons, through a variety of mechanisms, we're going to have to move back from what we consider the coastline right now. Well, you could say, okay, the water's going to rise, the marsh is a natural habitat, it'll just kind of move back. But on a rocky coast um, that's, that's full of human infrastructure, like the Connecticut coast, there's nowhere to back up to, in many cases. The marshes can't back up because of railroad tracks, roads. Here, for example, in Hammond Acid, it can back up to Route 1. Are we going to sacrifice Route 1? Mm, maybe not in the, in the next 20 years or so. But at some point, that's going to be an issue. And in the meantime, there's nowhere for the marsh to go. So we're walking along the Moraine Trail right now. It's um, a spectacular soundside trail. It's also interesting geologically because it's, it's one of the few glacial moraines that you can see um, very easily along the Connecticut coast. There are big stones here that look like um, some sort of riprap that you might see in a breakwater, but that's because over 20,000 years, all the smaller stuff is washed away in those areas but it's entirely natural, it's not a man-made thing. So this is a big natural beach. One of the things that's interesting about this particular stretch of beach is if you look at it, it's not sand, it's all slipper shells, Atlantic slipper shell. It just shows you how um, incredibly productive it sounds. I encountered this astounding fact, which is the average age of shells on a New England beach is 400 years.
1: Wow. Isn't that amazing? And that's the average age. So there's probably some shells in here that are a thousand years old. Sure. How did this gigantic pile of slipper shells end up right here? How, how did They're, this come to be?
6: Slipper shells are durable. Slipper shells are not clams. They're, it's actually a, a form of snail. And slipper shells are incredibly common. Storm waves come in and they wash up the lighter stuff um, that, that is in the shallow water up onto the sand, unfortunately burying some parts of the marsh um, at times. Four hundred years.
1: Yeah. Who knew? It's
3: amazing. Yeah.
1: One of my very favorite plants down down here along the shoreline are these uh, low-lying bushes with roses. Yeah. Uh, right along the right along the water. What what are these? These
6: are um, what's called wrinkled rose, sometimes seaside rose. The scientific name is Rosa rugosa. It's um, a natural wild rose. The interesting thing is that it's not native. It was brought here from Asia, probably in the 1800s. But um, people complain about other non-native plants, but I've very rarely hear people complain about <laughs> seaside rows or wrinkled rows because it, it's incredibly useful for stabilizing the coastline. This is not a particularly sandy environment, but uh, if you look at, say, Brushy Point in Groton, it's that long sandy point in Bluff Point State Park that really protects, like a giant breakwater, um, much of the Groton shoreline and that is covered with wrinkled rose and after sandy um, what was a beautiful kind of beach dune environment got wiped out almost entirely but a couple months after sandy i went walking along the beach and you could see just the tops of the old wrinkled rose that that had been buried like four feet Um, it's it's now beautiful again it's full of roses this stuff is like you know completely bulletproof along the coast. It's not just beautiful but it helps stabilize the the environment. So we're looking at um, a beautiful what's called high salt marsh or a salt meadow um, that uh, is formed as I said in that very narrow few inches between average high tide and the twice a month spring tides which are a little bit higher. There are Um, serious things we're going to lose when we lose these salt meadows. There are several kinds of um, sparrows, for example, salt marsh sparrow. Um, and sharp-tailed sparrow that we're, we're almost certainly going to lose over the next few decades. They're not that common now. They, they There are some nesting in here. Um, and they have this unfortunate um, peculiarity of their natural history. They live in these high marshes. It's wet much of the time. They lay their eggs in, in nests that are just an inch or two above the marsh surface. And they lay their eggs as soon as that sparrow that, um, Spring tide begins going down, and then they've got basically two weeks to lay their eggs, um, get the birds old enough so that they can climb up the grass stalks before the next spring tide comes along. And so, as the water keeps creeping up, these these birds are losing their habitat.
3: What was that
7: bird that just went?
6: Catbird. <laughs> That's why they have this and you hear it coming out of the bushes. They're, they love this bramble. just saw a song sparrow duck into the marsh elder there. This marsh elder is called, um, the people call it high tide bush because it grows in Exactly in the margin where the high tide line is, it can tolerate a little bit of salt water, but not too much. And so, if you ever want to know where the high tide is, um, you just look for this marsh el- uh, elder. And there's a big osprey circling right off here over the marsh, hunting these marsh creeks for uh, could be small flounder, just about any kind of fish that comes into the creeks, it'll be hunting for. You're getting lots of wild sound.
7: <laughs> what are you looking to catch? Um, I'm not really
5: sure. What are we looking to catch here? Whatever we can get. <laughs> Caught a baby lobster yesterday.
6: Lobsters um, are unlikely to become biologically extinct in the sound, but they've been commercially extinct for 20 years because the sound is just too warm for them.
3: As the lobster are, are leaving, are there new warmer water species coming into the sound?
6: Yes, in some ways the sound is becoming more like a, a slightly cooler version of uh, Chesapeake Bay. Blue crab populations are doing really well, they increase almost every year. That's a reflection of the fact that uh, blue crabs like much warmer water than lobsters do. Yeah, and
1: it's, it's- harder to find blue crabs in the Chesapeake Bay than it used to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's,
6: um, uh, there are people who study this that, that look at fish populations, uh, crab invertebrate populations, and, and they've actually come up with a metric of, uh, for some species, of, of miles per year in terms of northern
1: movement. Thank you for the tour. You're welcome. Patrick Lynch gave us that tour of Connecticut's Hammond-Acid Beach State Park. His book, A Field Guide to Long Island Sound, was published in March by Yale University Press. We've got photos and maps at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, what the Handmaid's Tale tells us about New England, then and now. It's next. next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. New England is the setting, both literally and symbolically, of The Handmaid's Tale. The hit TV series on Hulu starring Elizabeth Moss is offered, a young woman forced into sexual slavery in a dystopian near future. The United States has been overthrown and replaced by an oppressive new country called Gilead. The patriarchal leaders have used a near total collapse of fertility in the country to institute a kind of theocracy. The handmaids, including Offred, are women who are still fertile. Here, an instructor and disciplinarian called Aunt Lydia is speaking to a room of handmaids as part of their training. She quotes from the Bible by way of explaining the women's role in this new society.
2: When Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children she said unto Jacob give me children or else I die and Rachel said behold my maid Bela go in unto her and she shall bear upon my knees that I may have children
1: by her The series is based on the acclaimed novel by Margaret Atwood, written in 1985 as a response to the Islamic Revolution in Iran and the rise of the Christian right in America. We were curious about The Handmaid's Tale's connections to New England's Puritan past. In the new introduction to the book, Atwood writes, The Republic of Gilead is built on a foundation of the 17th century Puritan roots that have always lain beneath the modern-day America we thought we knew. Atwood has said that her setting for the book was inspired by the time she spent as a graduate student at Radcliffe College in Cambridge, then the women's counterpart to Harvard. She dedicated the novel to Mary Webster, a woman who was hanged for witchcraft in Connecticut and survived. She may have been one of Atwood's ancestors. So how closely does the dystopia of The Handmaid's Tale reflect the utopia that the Puritans were trying to create? For some answers, we turn to two historians who studied women, sexuality, and religion in 17th century New England. Rebecca Tannenbaum is a senior lecturer of history at Yale University, and Kathy Cook is a professor of history at Quinnipiac University. Rebecca, Kathy, welcome to Next.
2: Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to
7: be here.
1: I'll start with you, Rebecca, but I'd like to hear from both of you about that basic idea that Margaret Atwood puts forward in her new introduction. Do you see the 17th century Puritan roots here uh, in this new TV adaptation of, of A Handmaid's Tale?
2: Well, certainly you can see a lot of the ideas that Atwood had um, reflected in both her novel and in the TV show. One of the things that really struck me as a historian uh, watching the TV series was the structure of the family, because that, that scene right before the ceremony takes place and the entire household gathers to hear the patriarch read the Bible is a very 17th century scene. Um, And also the idea that a household, which includes both people related by blood and marriage, but also servants and employees and other kinds of people, that family structure is also very 17th century, and it's all ruled over by the father and husband in what is a literal, literal patriarchal structure. So that is something that is really very historically grounded.
1: Rebecca, you mentioned the ceremony for people who have not read the book or watched the television series. It's a highly uh, stylized sexual ceremony that includes, as you say, these very Puritan ideas of prayer and gathering the household together. But it goes beyond that. Without giving too much away, maybe you can (laughs) can 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 talk a bit about about what exactly is involved here and the in in the real terror that it brings to to the story.
2: So this is the ceremony in which uh, Offred and her commander, which is how he's referred to in both the book and the television series, attempt to conceive a child. Uh, And it begins with, as I said earlier, this Bible reading for the whole household. And then the commander, his wife, and Offred, the main character, adjourn to the bedroom where... Offred and the commander have sex, and it is a very, as you said, stylized moment um, in which the sex is very clearly not at all erotic and meant solely for the conception of children
7: or a child.
1: Kathy, does does this ceremony, does it have any sort of roots in, in Puritan history?
7: None that I'm aware of. Uh, in fact, I would argue that it's completely contradictory to Puritan expectations of sexuality in marriage. One of the most important things that's missing is uh, the expectation or the possibility of orgasm for women, which was expected as necessary for women to conceive. The ceremony as it's performed in the show, uh, is there, there's nothing erotic or even pleasurable about it really to either party.
1: What are the other realities of Puritan life, Rebecca, that you see in the world presented here?
7: Another thing that struck me
2: in addition, well, two things, uh, that struck me in addition to the family structure, I mean, one is uh, the ceremonies around childbirth. I think this uh, isn't too much of a spoiler because it was in one of the very early episodes uh, of the television show, but another handmaid, not Offred, but another handmaid gives birth and they gather all of the handmaids from the surrounding area, as well as all of the wives to come and participate in childbirth, to you know, be the kind of Lamas coach uh, for the woman giving birth, but also to kind of witness this moment, um, which is so valued in, in this culture. And in the 17th century, Childbirth was very much a women's ritual, and it was what historians have called for years social childbirth. So when a woman gave birth, you gathered all the neighbors, you gathered the relatives. The men were excluded from this moment, which is something else that happens in the novel and the TV series. This is a women's business. Um, another parallel I thought of was the public nature of judicial punishments. You know, prison was not a sentence in 17th century New England. Um, You might be held in jail while you awaited your trial or awaited your punishment, but punishments, you know, everything from the death penalty to whipping to being put in the stocks were public, and that public part of it, that public nature of it was part of the punishment, that you were punished in public so that shame would uh, be part of the punishment as well as the physical pain. Um, And you see that in The Handmaid's Tale as well, where um, the bodies of those people who were executed are are put on display so that everyone can see um, their shame, um, as well as reinforcing the power of the state of Gilead. And I think that was also part of the 17th century punishments as well, which is to reinforce the authority of law and government.
1: Another theme that runs through the story is that of surveillance of People spying on one another. The handmaids are meant to to walk together to the grocery, and they're paired up, and they all believe that the other who walks with them is a spy, and that that turns out in many cases to be true. Um, This idea of person-to-person surveillance is is also a part of this history.
2: Oh, very much so. New England towns were built so that everyone lived very close together, which is something you don't necessarily see in other parts of the uh, British colonies in North America. And part of the reason for that was a belief that God would punish a collective for the sin of one of its members. So you had to keep an eye on your neighbors and make sure that everyone was behaving correctly. And so... um, having that kind of surveillance of your family, of the people who live next door to you, of the people who lived across the street from you, um, that was all a very important part of the culture and an expected part of the culture.
7: Right. And you could add to that, that it it was particularly important to those who had resettled in North America. They felt very subject to the whims of the environment, to the indigenous peoples. As uh, William Bradford said, you know, Satan hath more power in these heathen lands. There was extra fear of what could happen religiously and socially among the Puritans as they settled in North America.
1: In the original dedication to The Handmaid's Tale, um, Margaret Atwood explained that uh, one of the people that she Dedicated the book to was a woman named Mary Webster who she said was an ancestor who was <laughs> hanged for a witch in Connecticut, but she didn't die. They hadn't invented the drop yet, the part of the platform that falls away, so they hanged her, but yet she lived. How much do you think that the the history of the Salem witch trials and the lesser known but still, um, of course, very important uh, witch hangings and burnings that happened uh, here in this state of Connecticut? Um, how much do you think that that? plays into this this worldview that Margaret Atwood puts forward and this, this idea that we have of what a, a Puritan-based dystopia might look like if it were to, to happen today?
2: Okay, that is a really big question. <laughs> um, but the first thing I thought of was, I mean, the essence of what a witch is, uh, is an enemy that looks like you, that talks like you, but is secretly... Connected to evil and doing evil against you, and certainly in the Handmaid's Tale, there is an idea that they are eliminating what the governors of Gilead think of as evil. Um, they are seeking it out. They are they are punishing it. They are executing it. They are driving it out. Um, so. In some ways, looking for the hidden enemy within is kind of the flip side of any utopian project, right? If you want everything to be perfect, you have to drive out all the imperfections. Um, And you could also see 17th century New England as a utopian project. They are trying to create the perfect Christian society in their view. And so driving out witches, driving out other kinds of evildoers, heretics. Um, driving those people out was necessary
7: to this project. I would just add to that that if you're looking at who are the witches, if we want to make this analogy very clear mm-hmm. in *The Handmaid's Tale* and in the, uh, in particular, in the television show, elderly women stand out as uh, women who are shunned. They're they're sent away. Right, and that's an interesting
2: connection with the. Uh, with the witch trials of the 17th century, um, if you look at the demographics of who was tried for witchcraft, it wasn't necessarily even elderly women, but women who had just finished menopause. Most of the witches who were tried and executed were between ages 40 and 60. And a historian noted that it was like often the first accusations came as soon as she bore her last child.
1: You, you mentioned this idea of the wanting to create a perfect Christian society. It, it makes me think of the the root word purity. What what do each of you think exactly that that meant in 17th century America? Purity. The
2: purity that they're referring to is to purify Protestantism from all remaining remnants of Catholicism. Everything from um, liturgical elements to even eliminating Christmas. Um, Christmas was in fact outlawed in many New England towns. Um, And there's a line from a witchcraft trial where someone talks about the devil tempting her to celebrate Christmas because the devil loves Christmas. (laughs) Um, But which, you know, sounds silly to us, right? But, you know, they saw Christmas and other kinds of feast days as remnants of Catholicism that they wanted to purify. Um, So Again, the word purity, I think, in modern parlance has a sexual connotation, but here it had very much a religious connotation.
7: Right, and I, I want to sort of follow up on that, because it's tempting to think of it as sexual purity, uh, and uh, you know, even H.L. Mencken, I think it is, who is quoted as saying, you know, the Puritans had the deep abiding fear that somewhere someone was having fun. <laughs> when it comes to sex, actually, Puritans were perfectly comfortable with pleasure in sex. In fact, they believed it was, as I said before, essential to conception, Um, but it was also essential to a successful marriage. It was essential to having a comfortable Christian life, and it was a way to avoid the devil's snares, as they called it, of fornication. They did, of course, believe that you were not to masturbate and that you were not to have sex outside of marriage, and certainly they also did not condone homosexuality.
1: So we have these these deep Puritan roots here in New England, but something that we've explored a little bit on the show with historians in the past is that new england has in so many ways changed to be this very accepting place this place that uh allows people to come from all o- other parts of the world that uh, has very uh, liberal laws on the books as far as gay marriage it, it it feels as though new england is not the place where a dystopia like this would take hold i i guess i'm wondering am, am i giving it too much credit as there's still a, a a vestige of Puritanism that, that is in modern New England that, that either of you see?
7: In some ways, sure. Um, <laughs> I think that the United States continues to be a relatively restrictive and limited society in terms of how it accepts sexuality. I don't think of New England as a particularly liberal place when it comes to sexuality so you know that's my first thought the other is that I think we still struggle with racial issues and we still tr- struggle with issues around gender so it, you know if one looks at it from a sexual angle I think it's kind of mixed and then I think when we think about broader issues about purity I think the country still remains quite and New England I should say more specifically remains puritanical
2: yeah and I, I would add two things to that one is, Just the way our politics nationally have become so polarized that both the left and the right want to purge the the dissenters from their ranks um, and still has that idea that we have to create a a pure um, republicanism or a pure leftist uh, agenda. And I think you see that on both sides and you certainly see that in New England on, on both sides of the political divide. Um, but the other thing I would say that is still with us is the physical spaces that uh, the original settlers laid out. You know, I'm speaking here from downtown New Haven, and New Haven was the first planned community, one of its uh, claims to fame as a city. And part of that plan with the famous nine squares was to c- recreate what the founders thought of as the plan of Jerusalem. And they also placed the church at the exact center of the community, where it would, you know, literally be the center of the community. And we still have the center church on the green here in New Haven. So even though the politics have changed, the ethnicities have changed, you still have this um, utopian project in many of the plans of New England towns.
1: Kathy Cook of Quinnipiac University, Rebecca Tenenbaum of Yale University. Thank you both so much for joining me. I appreciate it.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank it's you, It's a John. pleasure. Thank you.
1: The dystopian television drama The Handmaid's Tale is streaming on Hulu, but don't go looking for any signs of real modern-day New England. The episodes were actually filmed in Canada. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Maraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Robin doyen aiken Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill, and you can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.